Welcome to Covenant Church this morning. My name is Weston. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you guys are with us today. You can go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to pick up there in just a few moments. Um, Every Tuesday, I teach a class uh, as a part of the Hub's Purchase Program. And, and so this is a class for women who have come out of a life of prostitution um, or out of a life in uh, the sex industry or they have actually been engaged in, in human trafficking. And so as you can imagine, this is an eclectic group of people. Um, and one of the things that uh, we do as a part of the two-year purchased trauma recovery program is, and, and really the most important part of it for us is, is we teach them the gospel. Like, we want them to have a full and complete understanding of the good news of Jesus, what that is, what that means for our lives. And, and the philosophy there is, is basically that we can do a lot of things for these women who have come out of lives of abuse, uh, lives of significant trauma. We can uh, get them into uh, amazing counseling. We can provide them with opportunities uh, to recover from much of the trauma that they've experienced. We can help them get on their feet uh, and have hope in life in general. But if, if we do all of those things and we don't introduce them to the gospel and give them a full understanding of what the gospel actually is, because ultimately it is our real hope, If we don't do that, then what have we done for them, right? Um, And so, on Tuesdays, as a part of that, I I teach this class, and and the goal is uh, to introduce them to who Jesus is and what he's all about. And and it's always a fascinating time together. Um, And and so what we do is we actually use a resource in that class called the Story of God. It's a resource that was produced by a church in Tacoma, Washington called Soma Church, and it's, it's simply a narrative walkthrough of the Bible. And one of the things that I've become convinced of is that you can have a, kind of a cursory knowledge of what the gospel is. So you can have this, this thing that you repeat. You know, God sent his only son to die for our sins, and because of that we're not, you know, we can, we can say that. But without a full understanding of the narrative of the Bible— Right, without a full understanding of the story arc of the Bible, then I don't think we have a full, rich, deep understanding of what the gospel is, even though we might be able to regurgitate some quick definition of it. And so our goal there is to teach people just the overarching story narrative of Scripture. And so we use this great resource, and um, the way that it works is, uh, each week we kind of engage a new chunk of scripture and I just read them the story that happens in whatever particular area of the Bible we're in. It's not so much a verse by verse thing as much as it is, let me, let me read you the story of God as if it is this amazing, exciting, mysterious, adventure-filled novel. Because sometimes we forget that the Bible, in addition to being God's word, is also this amazing work of literature, right? It is filled with twists and turns and amazing stories. And so we read them the story of God and we present it to them in this way. And then we have some amazing discussion about it as well. You can only imagine some of the discussions that we have 
about the Bible. Um, and some of these women have, have been in church to some extent in their lives. Some of them have a remedial understanding of some of the stories in the Bible, or they've heard some things, or they've cobbled some things together over the years. Um, so everybody comes to the table with some kind of opinion of what the Bible is, or who God is, or who Jesus is. Um, and, and you have some who are ready to believe in Jesus. They're ready to give Jesus everything. You have some who are deeply skeptical about this Jesus thing, this church thing. And so each week we gather and we tackle a new part of scripture. And what's interesting to me is that the question that is most frequently asked in this class is the question, why? (laughs) It's the question, why? And, And it helps me remember, as somebody who grew up in church and has been in church his entire life, it it helps me remember that there are parts of the Bible that can be deeply confusing, right? And, and there are parts of the Bible that are just downright weird. They're just downright strange. And, and these ladies help me remember that on a weekly basis. For some of us who grew up in church, there are stories that are just unbelievably bizarre in the Bible, and yet we have heard them so many times that they're no longer weird to us, right? They're, they're now commonplace to us, and we kind of forget how some of these stories must sound to people who have no context for this and who didn't grow up around it and who haven't spent their lives sitting in church services like this week in, week out. It's important for me to be reminded of this stuff regularly. But what's interesting is the more that we engage God's word, the more that those why questions are answered, and the more that we engage God's word as a whole, the more some of the weird stuff starts to make sense to us. A particular story that our women found very weird was the story of Abraham, right, which is this long, drawn-out story. God calls this guy, whose name was at the time Abram, to leave his home and to go to a completely different country that he had never been to before, and God makes all of these amazing promises to him. I'm going to bless the earth through your lineage. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea. God does all of these things for Abram. He changes his name to Abraham. He changes his wife's name to Sarah. And, and, and yet, after years and years and years and years and years and years and years of waiting on a son in his old age, God finally gives him a son. And then God says, now kill him. Right? And our ladies heard that story and went, what? What? What's happening here? And if you know the story of, of Abraham and his son Isaac, uh, Abraham, who was, was almost like just blindly obedient to God in ways that I think it's hard for us to understand, Abraham it, it seemingly kind of takes his son and goes, all right, well, you know what? We've been waiting for decades, but sorry, sorry, dude, you know, and leads him up the mountain to kill him. And then they get to the top of the mountain, and, and, and the way that the story reads, it's like Abraham is like poised with the dagger, and then here in the bushes is a ram that is sacrificed in place of Isaac. And you read that, and you go, huh, what? You know? And yet you read the rest of the story, right? You read the rest of the Bible, and you come to Jesus And you begin to see the Bible as literature as well. And you recognize, oh, wait a second, this is foreshadowing, right? Jesus is the ram in the bushes, right? Jesus is the one who is sacrificed in place of us, 
You see this in the Passover story in the Old Testament. You know, there's all this blood stuff. Man, that's confusing to people when God's going, I want you to smear blood all over your house so I don't kill you, right? What do, what do we do with that? Well, then we get to Jesus, and we see that Jesus is the Passover lamb. And we see that because of Jesus' blood, God's wrath passes over our lives. Because it sees not our lives, it sees Jesus. Not our blood, but Jesus' blood. And so today, I want to engage a story in the Bible uh, that the women in our class found to be pretty weird. Uh, And yet, I believe it's a story that many of us need to hear not only today, but regularly. And, and it seems to me that we've been in a season here in the life of our church where there are many individuals and families who've just been going through hard times. It's been a hard season for a lot of people on a variety of fronts. And so I think today's text can not only offer some comfort, hopefully, but perhaps more importantly, it can give us some direction. It can give us a plan of response in difficult times. This is Matthew chapter 4, Let's begin in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Just a preface to this today, and we've said this before. The fact that you're going through a difficult season, whether it's in your marriage, or it's in your family, or it's involving maybe your health, or the health of a loved one, or it's your job, or it's your kids, or it's a lingering sin problem of some kind in your life, whatever it is, listen, we cannot simply assume that this is happening because we are somehow out of God's will or because God is punishing us in some way or because we've somehow messed up. And yet, speaking for myself, man, this is my natural tendency. I don't know if that's true for you or not. This is how I think I'm conditioned to think. Like if something is going wrong in my life, I tend to think, that it's because I've messed up somehow and God is punishing me. Likewise, if things are going good in my life, I tend to think, well, it's because I'm doing the right things, or if I'm following God correctly, then he is going to bless me accordingly. And the problem with that thinking is that because of Jesus, listen to this, because of Jesus, God does not primarily relate to us based on our work, does he? 
Because of Jesus, God does not primarily relate to us based on our good work or our bad work. Like that is at the core of why the good news should be good news to us. Because if God is responding to us primarily based on my work, whether good or bad, if he's responding to me based on my work, I have no hope whatsoever. I have no hope whatsoever. Because no matter how good or how moral I am, no matter how much good work I may try to do, it will never measure up to his standard and it will never be enough to save me. And so for those of us who are in Christ, praise the Lord, he relates to us based on Jesus' work and Jesus' life which is perfect, right? Jesus' perfect life laid on top of my imperfect life. That is why the good news is good news. That is why we have hope in Christ. Because it's not about me, it's actually about him and what he has done. And I believe that the biblical example is that for those of us who follow Jesus with our lives, we are effectively, listen, we are effectively signing up for a harder life. For thus, those of us who truly are seeking to follow Jesus with everything, I believe that we are effectively signing up for a harder life. Because to follow Jesus means you're signing up for a life where your reward will not be seen in this life. At least in full. We are signing up for a life where our reward will be seen in eternity future. And this should set us apart from non-believers. There's this great passage in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus is talking about hypocrites. Primarily, he's talking about religious hypocrites, Pharisees. He's talking about the men who want to pray on the street corner and use all of these big grandiose words and have other people see them and be impressed with them, right? He's talking about the Pharisees who want to tithe their, their garden herbs, right? And they want to be seen as being supreme and holy for tithing even the smallest elements of their lives. And what Jesus says over and over and over again is, I tell you this, they have received their reward. They've already received their reward, meaning their life is now as good as it's going to get. But for those of us who are in Christ, the beautiful thing is, man, our lives will only get better. Right? There is only more to come when we see God's kingdom in its fullness, when we get to enter into his kingdom in its fullness, when we get to be a part of God's family in the way that he has promised to us. It's this amazing hope that we have, that we catch a glimpse of now in and through Jesus, but that will ultimately be fulfilled in the life to come. Everyone else is trying to find their reward in this life. Pretty much everybody else around you in your world more than likely is not banking on what Jesus has done and what is to come. We're banking on the here and now, right? And I struggle with this myself. I I, want to find my meaning, my purpose, my identity. I want to find that in my work. I want to find that in my job. I want to find meaning 
or identity in helping other people or being a part of things that are like good and wholesome and that build people up or that make people's lives better. I want to find who I am in that. And there is a selfishness to that because I'm trying to find my meaning in my work and not in Jesus's work. And that's a tricky, slippery slope for us. It can be insidious because rather than finding our identity in Christ and just resting in him, praising God for what Jesus has done for us, that it's his work and it's his life, it's not my work and my life, man, we can spend our lives trying to earn his favor when we already have it. Because we think we've got to please him. Right? We've got, we think we've got to be, be good enough to like live up to this thing that he's done for us. And maybe we're missing what he really has for us in our pursuit of trying to work hard enough to gain the favor that we already have. Does that resonate with anybody? Most people are trying to find their hope in this world. The challenge for the Christian in a privileged and wealthy society where by and large you can have the things that you want is that we are choosing and following Jesus to knowingly and intentionally defer our reward past this world. We're choosing to place our hope in things that are unseen and not in the things that seem maybe logical to most people in this life. And this is based on faith. Uh, some of you have heard maybe of uh, this experiment that took place in the 60s called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. And it's this really interesting experiment that was all about studying uh, delayed gratification. And so these researchers invited children into a room, and once they got in the room, they would offer them a treat. You could have a marshmallow, uh, maybe you could have a cookie, and what they would tell them is this, you can eat this now, or if you will wait 15 minutes while you're sitting here staring at this treat, if you'll wait 15 minutes, not only can you eat this treat, but we've got a bigger, better treat for you as well. All you have to do is not eat it. So as you can imagine... Uh, as soon as the researchers left the room, many of these kids immediately picked up the cookie and ate it as quickly as they could. You know, you have to truly believe, right, that this researcher is good. You have to believe in things unseen to sit there and stare at the cookie and not eat it in the hope that at some point down the road, you're going to get something even better, and you get to eat the cookie. There's a word for what those children were experiencing in the midst of that study, and the word is temptation. The word's temptation. And isn't it remarkable that Jesus begins his ministry by intentionally experiencing hardship and temptation? Isn't that interesting? The text said that this wasn't accidental. It said that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. That it led Jesus into this season of temptation. Now it's important for us to see, uh, and I believe this connects directly to the Lord's Prayer, uh, where Jesus teaches us 
to pray, Father, lead us not into temptation. Because in some sense, this is Jesus going, hey, listen, I've been led into temptation. And it's not fun, right? It's hard. It's difficult. It's not, it's not a situation you want to be in. Ultimately, he has experienced how hard this is. And, and please take note here of the fact that God is not the tempter, right? God is the one who leads into these seasons potentially, but yet the tempter is Satan himself in this scenario. It is the devil that comes along in this moment. Hebrews 4.15, I think, is helpful here. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, a few things I want to emphasize here. Uh, First, Jesus' humanity alongside Jesus' divinity. He is both God and man. And and what we want to do sometimes is we kind of want to take away the man part. We want to take away the humanity of Jesus. Uh, We want to believe that Jesus was just perfectly God incarnate without any human elements or tendencies. And yet that is not what Scripture teaches. That that would actually be heretical. It's heretical to take away Jesus' humanity. Because without humanity, then he is unable to empathize with us in our weakness. Because he hasn't experienced weakness. So we have to have this picture in going into this conversation. We serve a Savior who was a man and who experienced real temptation. Which means this. It means that Satan's ploys, Satan's offers to Jesus were appealing. Right? Sometimes we can read this account and just kind of blow through it, and it can seem to us as if, you know, I'm sure we picture like Jesus standing up on a rock somewhere in the wilderness with his dress on, right? And then the red stole thing that he apparently wore with the, you know, his hairs flowing behind him. And here comes Satan, and Jesus is just above it all, right? I think we can read that with that impression that Jesus doesn't struggle with the temptation in any way, or that Satan's temptation is in no way appealing to him. If it's not appealing to him, then it's not temptation, right? Right? If it's not appealing, then it's not temptation. So, so I'm not a cake person, right? I don't, I, I'm just, I don't care a whole lot about cake. It's just not my thing. You can sit a chocolate cake in front of me, and, and I'm perfectly happy to let it sit there uneaten, It's just not my thing. It is not tempting to me or appealing to me in any way, shape, or form. But you set some bluebell ice cream in front of me, and there's no way. Like, I I have no willpower when it comes to ice cream. It's my favorite thing. It is deeply appealing to me. So in the first case, it's not temptation. It's not appealing. In the second case, you better believe it's temptation. And so when we read this story, please don't come away with this notion That what Satan offers to Jesus wasn't in some way appealing to him. That there wasn't some level of consideration on his part about what this was and what it would mean. It's why he's able to empathize with us in our weakness. 
Notice that this says also in Hebrews, secondly, in every respect, he has been tempted as we are. In every respect. If we got out some paper right now and started making lists of the ways in which you are tempted on the regular, we would run out of paper, guys. And what Scripture's telling us here is that our Savior has been tempted in all of the same ways. So just imagine for a moment the ways that the enemy tempts you. And to know that we have a Savior that has also experienced the same things, and yet, here comes the divinity part, yet without sin. Yet without sin. And so there's this great tendency, I think, to turn the wilderness into this grand metaphor for difficult seasons in our lives. And you could compile a long list of books and sermons and podcasts that are all about the wilderness. It's all about going through hard times. But I think if we want to turn the wilderness into a metaphor, we can't just see it as hard times in general. The wilderness, from the perspective of Jesus, is we we have to view it as this time of great temptation that has the, the ability to produce within us great spiritual growth. Right? It's not just a tough time. It's a time of great temptation that has the potential to produce within us spiritual growth. A time when you are really considering eating the cookie because you think it will make your life better. You're really considering eating the cookie maybe because you think it will somehow get you out of the wilderness. And while no one wants to be in that place, I'd like for us to consider that perhaps, perhaps the example of Jesus that we find in Matthew chapter 4 is that we should not try to flee from the wilderness by giving into temptation, but we should actually press into wilderness seasons in resisting temptation. A scripture that comes to mind here is James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And when you read the New Testament, there is this thread throughout the New Testament that true spiritual maturity is marked by these words like steadfastness and endurance. Those words are used over and over and over and over again to describe spiritual maturity. This idea that we arrive at such an understanding of the gospel, not only mentally, but also here in our heart, that we're so certain of what is hoped for. We're so certain of what we do not see that we truly recalculate and recalibrate our lives around that Hope, And so eventually we get to this place where we are marked by steadfastness and endurance in resisting the offers of the enemy and the offers of this world because we truly believe that what is to come far surpasses anything that we could experience in this life. That is seemingly how the New Testament describes what it looks like to mature in Christ, to mature in our faith. And so James here says in verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect on your life that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing. Count it joy. This is an amazing opportunity 
for you to grow in Jesus. And so temptation, obviously, is a testing of your faith. We talked about the cookie. Faith is required if you are not going to eat the cookie, right? You have to believe in something you have not seen. You have to believe that there is something better to come. And so what James is telling us is that the wilderness could actually be one of the greatest things to ever happen to your life. It produces steadfastness, resolve, sureness of purpose, sureness of God's goodness. In other words, the road to spiritual maturity, it runs through the wilderness, guys. I think there's a reason why Jesus begins his ministry here. And by the way, where we picked up this morning in Matthew 4, we're immediately following Jesus' baptism. So this is right at the very beginning of his ministry. He has come to John the Baptist. He has been baptized by John. It says the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. They hear this audible voice, this is my son who I am well pleased with, and then immediately the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to experience this season. There is purpose and intention here. This is not pointless. And I think it's especially key that this is where Jesus begins his ministry. And so if you buy into the lie that the way out of the wilderness is to give in to temptation, you're actually only venturing farther into the wilderness. Jesus shows us that the way out, the path to steadfastness, is faith. It is the resistance of that which is most appealing to us. In 1 John 2.16, John calls these common human temptations the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And these are precisely the things that Satan uses to tempt us. And they're also the offers that Satan makes to Jesus in this text. Let's look again uh, at Matthew 4. Um, Let's draw out a few things this morning. So we've just mentioned the three primary ways that Jesus was tempted. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But let's Look at each episode. So first, Satan waits until the opportune moment. Notice, he waits until Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days. He's been fasting for 40 days. Satan is like a lion waiting for the wounded animal so that he can pounce. No doubt, Jesus is physically exhausted This is when the enemy comes. Now, all of these temptations, by the way, follow a pattern. The goal here for Satan is to get Jesus, I think, to do something that would be unbefitting of the Messiah, right? To abdicate his role as servant, savior. And it's similar to us. I think Satan's goal is to get us to do things unbefitting a child of God. And so first he appeals to Jesus' hunger in verse 3, the lust of the flesh, He says in verse 3, if you are the Son of God. Notice that each of these are a question. If you are the Son of God, prove it. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now why in the world is that tempting? Well, 
I mean, if you've been fasting for 40 I mean, has anybody fasted for 40 days before? No, I fasted for maybe like two, and the, the, like, the headache from lack of coffee about did me in. Like, Satan could have just been a barista at that moment, you know. <laughs> I would have been done. He then appeals to Jesus on the basis of pride, and this appeal is like, show me how awesome you are, right? Give me this demonstration of how amazing your power is. Throw yourself off of this temple. And then lastly, it's the lust of the eyes in verse 8. I will give you all of this incredible stuff. More than that, I will give you glory. Now here's what we have to realize. Satan tempts us in exactly the same ways. We've said this. But pride is ultimately at the root of what makes all of this appealing to us. With the lust of the eyes, it's the sense that you are entitled to food or drink or sex or material things or money or a comfortable life, that you deserve it, that it's what belongs to you. And the problem is that Satan plays a long game and he long ago convinced you that there are things you deserve right? That's not really in question for most of us, is it? Most of us live our lives every day just assuming that there are things that we deserve. That there are things that we are entitled to. That there are things that we have a right to. And, and I would say that Scripture's perspective here is that truly the only thing we have a right to is death. That the only thing we truly have a right to is the punishment for our sin. Again, why the good news is good news. It's not because of our sin or our work. It's now because of Jesus and his work and his lack of sin that we are offered hope and reconciliation to God. But Satan has convinced us that there are things that we absolutely deserve. There are absolutely things that we can't live without. And, And please don't hear me saying that we shouldn't enjoy good food or that we shouldn't want things in our life. We all want things that we shouldn't desire for our families to be a certain way or for our marriages to be a certain way. Those are not inherently bad things. But listen, when you live in a perpetual state of entitlement where you feel as if you cannot live without the things that you feel you deserve, then there is some serious repentance that needs to take place inside of you. I I think this is at the root of most divorce. It's at the root of most adultery. It's the idea that I deserve something else. I deserve someone else. I don't deserve to be treated that way. It's on both sides of the field. I don't deserve this person and the way that they chew uh, or, right, or the way that they snore or the way that they talk to. You know, I mean, j- just make your list, right? We can convince ourselves, I'm above this. I'm not entitled to this. I don't deserve this in my life. And without repentance, listen, you will fall victim to this temptation every time without letting go of the things that you feel entitled to. Uh, The lust of the eyes, this desire for importance, power, glory, fame, the desire to be known, the desire that our lives would have meaning, it finds a welcome home in most of our hearts. It certainly finds a welcome home in my heart, this desire that my life matter 
that my life have meaning, that people look at my life and see my life as a life that has, has meaning. Let me ask you, how often uh, do you think about your legacy, right? Is that something you think about? How often do you think about uh, what people will say about you at your funeral? How often do you think about who would even come to your funeral? Those are, th- those are things I think about, right? In, in just living life, I, th- I, I think ultimately, is this impressing other people, Right? Are other people wowed by this, right? Are people going to come around my family after I'm gone and go, man, he was so so incredible, right? He was such a great guy, right? Don't we all want that on some level? Don't we all want people to be impressed with us or impressed with our kids or impressed with our family or our home life or our job or the work that we're doing or the lives that we're working with or the transformation that we're helping facilitate? Or Don't we want people to be impressed with the legacy that we leave? To be impressed with our work? Absolutely we do. This is what Satan is appealing to Jesus on the basis of. It's how he appeals to us. And, and here's what he does, I think. I think he whispers in our ear, you don't matter. And it just drives us into pursuing our own success, our own fame, our own sense of worth. Many of us are driven into depression by this because we think I don't matter. I'm trying so hard, but yet I still feel worthless. We're trying to find our identity in things other than Jesus. Finally, our desire to be appreciated, to be seen as awesome by other people, this this sense of pride is at the heart of Satan tempting Jesus to throw himself off the temple. It's like, show me your tricks, son of God. Like, show me me your magic stuff you can do if you're really the son of God. Throw yourself off of here. And notice, by the way, that Satan uses scripture here, right? Doesn't he say, like, you throw yourself off of this temple and, and your word, God's word says that angels will come around, they'll catch you. You're not even going to hit the ground, man. Show me. Show me how amazing you must be. This desire for other people to be impressed. That other people would think we are as great as we think we are. And so in all of these things... Satan wants Jesus to embrace pride. He wants him to pursue his own glory apart from the Father and to gorge himself on things that are temporary and earthly. And the same is true for us every day. So, two things as we wrap up today. How do we fight this? First of all, and this is normally the sermon from this text, is we have to nourish ourselves on the Word of God. Normally what people pull out here is the way that Jesus responds to each of these temptations. He responds to each of these temptations by quoting scripture. And so often this turns into a sermon about scripture memorization. And scripture memorization is a great thing. Here's the problem. If you don't believe the Bible, it doesn't matter if you have it memorized. If you don't believe it, it doesn't matter if you have it memorized. Please memorize it. But even more importantly, believe it's true. And one of the problems that we run into, that I run into, is in not believing that it's true. Because here's the deal. When we find ourselves in the wilderness, you know what is quickly drawn out of us? What we actually believe is quickly drawn out of us when we are in difficult seasons. What we really believe about our hope, 
what we really believe about the future, what we really believe about Jesus, all of those things come spewing out of us when we're in a difficult time. It's often evidence in the fact that we try to fix problems ourselves first. We exhaust every possible solution, and when every solution is exhausted, we then come to God and pour ourselves out in prayer. We beg Him. We lay ourselves before Him. Why does that often last for us? Right? If we really believe what we say we believe, we really believe this scripture that we've memorized, then why is that not our first stop? Why is that not our primary hope? If you don't know the word, and if you don't believe the word, you're not going to be effective in the wilderness. So don't wait for Jason or for Luke or for me to nourish you on a Sunday morning. You will be malnourished, right? You will not be prepared. If this is it for you for the week, you had your 30 minutes in the Bible, you had your 30 minutes talking about Jesus, and then it's just back to normal life, You will not be prepared for these seasons, period. You have to nourish yourself in the word of God every day. I'm not talking about just listening to sermons online. I'm not talking about listening to Christian music. I'm not talking about reading books about the Bible. I'm talking about reading the Bible regularly. Make it a discipline in your life even when you don't want to, even when you feel like I got nothing out of that. You will read the Bible sometimes and feel like I didn't get anything out of that. But here's what happens is over time, those things are being imprinted on your heart. Absolutely memorize scripture, but believe it. Believe that it is true. Believe that it truly is God's word. Secondly, we must follow the spirit. Again, I mentioned earlier, this comes right after Jesus' baptism. So he has now been filled with the Spirit, we read in Scripture. It is being filled with the Spirit that I believe empowers him to then go into the wilderness season, to go into this time of temptation. And so we have to walk into these seasons willingly, but filled with his Spirit and nourished by his word. Um, and, and so this begins with our knowledge of Jesus, right? If we're going to actually be obedient to the Spirit in patterning our lives after Jesus, which, which is what Scripture calls us to, then we have to know who Jesus is. We have to know what Jesus is like. We have to know what it means to live lives that look like Jesus' life. And so we have to have this knowledge of who Jesus is that's found in his word. But we have to be obedient to the Spirit as well. We have to submit to the Spirit in our lives. And so when you think about who Jesus is and what Jesus is like, what what words come to mind for you? Like the things that come to mind for me are words like humility, servanthood. Uh, I see Jesus as somebody who willingly lost position in life instead of grappling and striving to gain position in life. He stepped out of heaven. He became lower than the angels. Scripture says he lowered himself to our level. And so he has given up his kingship in doing some of this. He's given up his heavenly privilege. He's willingly walking into death on behalf of other people. And so he's embracing discomfort 
for the sake of others. He was intentionally present with people who weren't like him at all, uh, crippled and demon-possessed people and blind people and Samaritans and women and adulterers and lepers, and the list goes on and on. Most of us live very homogenous lives where we are only around the people who are most like us. Jesus embraced humanity with this great sense of love. No matter where people were, he would be present with them. And so we take these characteristics of Jesus and go, man, how does my life need to change if I'm being obedient to the Spirit to follow Jesus? How does my life need to change so that my life begins to look a little bit more like Jesus's life? And so we nourish ourselves the word of God, we submit to the Spirit to pattern our lives after Jesus. And here's the thing, it doesn't ensure that wilderness seasons will be easy. And God never promises us that temptation will just go away. That we'll get to some spiritual plane of maturity where we're just above appealing sin. But that by walking through these seasons, there's something that is produced in us called endurance. I want to reread as I close what Jason read earlier, James 4, verses 1 through 10, because I think it speaks very clearly to this point. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. Uh, that word passions, uh, the Greek word that's used there is what we get the word hedonism from today. So this sin nature, these earthly, worldly desires within you are ultimately what are doing battle and are causing a lot of the problems in your life is what James is saying here. You desire, for example, you desire, but you don't have, and so you murder. You covet, but you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, and you spend it on your passions. Uh, in First John there's a passage of scripture that basically says, listen, if you're asking for things that aren't God's will, then God's not listening to you, right? You're just asking for things that you want because it's just for, it's for your life. You, you want to bless yourself, right? And it's just outside of God's will. It's not of him. Then it says he's, he's not even listening to you. So I think that's what he's talking about here when he says you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, these things at war inside you. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Man, God desires to see us be obedient to the spirit that he has placed within us. 
God within us, coming to dwell within us. That's what he wants, is to see himself in us, right? To see the Spirit come alive, to see us become obedient to the Spirit in all ways. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Man, this is the plan, y'all. This is the so what. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is how the account in Matthew 4 ends. He resists the devil, and the devil flees. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep over your sin. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's when we come to a full understanding of who we are and who he is and how far we fall from who he is, it's in that moment when we truly submit ourselves in humility before him and say, not my will, but yours. And so let me pray for us this morning as we close and as we come to his table, that no matter what season you are walking through right now, that you will be encouraged, that God's desire is to fill you with his spirit, He hasn't left you in the wilderness alone. He has purpose for this season in your life. He has intention for this season in your life. His intention is not that you would just give in to the temptation of the enemy, that you would give in to the passions that are warring inside you, but instead that you would submit in humility to our Father, that you would embrace the Spirit, that you would pursue the likeness of Jesus in your life, And that this would produce steadfastness and endurance within you. Embrace these seasons as the opportunity that they are to truly grow, to truly develop, to truly mature as a follower of Jesus. Father, we give you praise and honor today. We thank you for your word. God, what we recognize today is that the lives that you have called us to are not easy. And you alone, you alone, Father, are good. You are worth our devotion. You are worth our praise. You are worth us giving over our wants and our desires to you to follow you with everything that we have, Father, because what you offer to us is far greater than anything that this world can offer to us, God. May we believe that fully in our spirits, God. May we embrace it as as an inalienable truth of life that you have more for us, that you want more for us, that you want to call us your sons and daughters, that you want to call us heirs to your throne of grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the hope that we are offered in Christ Father, may we press fully into the beauty of the gospel. May it truly change our lives. May we submit everything to you and follow you in obedience. God, give us grace for difficult seasons.
prepare us, prepare our hearts, grow us, teach us endurance, Father, so that we might bring you honor and glory through our lives. We love you, and it is in your name we pray. Amen.